Welcome to another Co-op Conversations podcast episode. Each episode features different guests living in housing cooperatives in various parts of the world. Through these conversations, you'll learn more about life in a housing cooperative for children, teenagers, parents, and seniors. In one episode, we take a slightly different approach and we talk to Brenda Torpy from Burlington, Vermont, who is a longtime champion of the community land trust model, a land ownership model that some housing co-ops also use. I'm Julie LaPalm, Secretary General of Cooperative Housing International, or CHI. I deliver CHI's work program, which includes communications, education, and knowledge sharing, governance, and collaborations. Cooperative Housing International is one of the sectoral organizations of the International Cooperative Alliance, which is the global apex body representing all cooperatives. CHI raises awareness about cooperative housing by promoting its successes on a global level. We also facilitate networking opportunities via knowledge sharing events. If you go to our first podcast episode, we explain housing cooperatives. If you want to learn more about the different types of housing cooperatives or find out more about the work we do, please head over to our website at housinginternational.coop. So Brenda Torpy was a founding member of the Champlain Housing Trust in Burlington, Vermont, over 35 years ago when she worked in the office of Mayor Bernie Sanders. We all know Bernie Sanders and his big mittens. He's... <laughs> If he wasn't famous before, he's famous now. <laughs> um, and, uh, and she was also its first board president. In these roles, she was a trailblazer for a new type of affordable housing called a community land trust, which grew locally and more recently across the globe. Widely called the Burlington model, there are now over 260 CLTs in the United States and over 300 in England and Wales and others have been established in Australia, Belgium, Canada, Puerto Rico, France and, and the list continues and interest has also been rising in, in Germany and in other countries. Champlain Housing Trust is the largest community land trust in the world with 3,000 homes of all types throughout northwestern Vermont serving people experiencing homelessness, homes for people with special needs, affordable apartments for the working class, and a pioneering shared equity homeownership program that removes financial hurdles for buyers while creating housing that is permanently affordable. So welcome, Brenda. So nice to see you, and, and thanks for joining us today. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm really happy to do it. So what led you to working in housing? Well, I, I would say I, would, I didn't think of housing particularly as a path, but I did want to work in social justice work. And when I first came to Vermont, I had the opportunity to volunteer with a group called Vermont Progressive Initiative. And one of the issues in that community was housing. And the housing authority is very corrupt. And so I was organizing around that and a couple of other issues, healthcare. And there were French Canadian families there who'd come down as workers. So I was able to translate and really connect with that community and help them engage. And that was fun for me. Then I got posted in an um, anti-poverty agency up right near the border in Franklin County. And that job was to advocate uh, in affordable housing. And at that time, of course, Vermont had no landlord, tenant protections, no tenant protections. And it was a very, you know, I just saw the impact and started to learn that field and, and uh, 
got assigned to a fledgling nonprofit in big community development projects for small cities up there that didn't have any capacity. So we did those grants for them. And I got the bug, you know, I really liked the practical side of housing. Policy can seem difficult, but once you start sort of also building things, there's some result. But I was uh, planning to move away from there and looking at maybe working in international work and went to a summer peace school in Denmark, just trying to figure out where I would go. And while I was there, of course, I realized, oh, Burlington, Vermont just elected a socialist mayor. <laughs> I don't have to go anywhere to do the kind of work I would like to do. So very naively, instead of calling him up and saying, you know, I really want to work for you, I just started applying for jobs. And because he was creating this community development office, there had not been much capacity at all for this kind of work in the city before. There were a number of jobs and I got the housing position. It was so exciting to work in that environment where the goal was really to support the people who, who traditionally have been left out. And you have a, a Canadian connection as well, right? Like you you are, well, you're an American citizen now, but you grew up in, in Canada. Also a Canadian citizen, yeah. I grew up in Montreal and uh, went to French school until high school. And then my family is very strong on bilingualism. And so I continued my studies in English. And I lived in Toronto when I did my graduate school work. Okay. Canada represents. Yes, those Canadians, you know, we do good everywhere. Yeah, yeah. So a community land trust is a, a nonprofit corporation that holds land on behalf of a community while serving as the, the long-term steward for affordable housing, community gardens, civic buildings, commercial spaces, and, and other community assets on behalf of a community. Do you have a, a better definition? Like, do you have a quick, easy way to, to describe it and how it works and, and, and where, where does this idea come from? Okay, well, the idea had its origins in the civil rights movement uh, in, in Georgia and the South when people were fighting for the right to vote and also economic access. And the first community land trust was land where people worked the land together, but own their own homes. So they developed this model of by owning the land collectively, these folks could never have got you know, mortgages or bought a home. But by buying the land collectively, raising that money collectively, that's cooperative. But individually, it was very important to be able to own their own homes. So they developed this sort of hybrid. And then as folks uh, evolved the thinking about this, obviously a lot of African-Americans were moving to the cities, uh, moving north. And in those cities, they're also being pushed aside from home ownership and the better neighborhoods. And so folks worked on adapting this model for the urban environment, which would be not so much you're gonna buy all the land in one place together because you're not gonna farm, you're gonna be working in a factory or whatever, but a way that still you could collectively buy it on the land and protect it together for the purpose of affordable housing and let people also become homeowners individually. When we started in Burlington in the 80s, there were just, a, I remember three anyway, community land just in cities. They were very small and struggling because they did not have any government support, of course. But what their goal was really to defend and protect an affordable neighborhood because the only time improvements came to those low-income neighborhoods is when people wanted to move all the poor people out, right, and gentrify in that way. So that's a bit of the historical, but to simply describe it, it is that combination of collectively 
own land, you work in the cooperative movement, it's really cooperative ownership of land, but individual ownership of homes. And we do more than that, most land trusts do, but you can sell off the buildings. But the reason to keep the land in collective ownership is to really preserve that affordability. You're going against the capitalist culture, you know, the market-driven real estate culture that even our government programs feed into. And so this contractual relationship of the entity owns the land and we have a ground lease with you, that's kind of a watertight legal structure for ownership that's quite unbreakable in the courts. And so it's very important to have that kind of strength in your relationship so that the affordability would preserve over time. And then I wanted to address one other aspect. You said it, you know, it's a community-based organization that stewards land for the community. Well, how do we effectively do that? A lot of nonprofits could say, I'm here to do benefit the community. But we actually, key to the community land trust structure is a board governance and the structure of the entity so that you are really tied to representation in your community. So the first thing is it's a membership organization. Anybody in the service area can join and be part of it. And the membership has rights. They elect the board as a group. They have to approve changes to bylaws, changes to any of our affordability formula, and so on, which is not true most nonprofits. Those decisions stay with the board. The board of directors and what we call the classic community land trust is a three-part board. One-third always residents of your homes. One-third residents of your service area who support the mission who are not residents of your home. And that's how we balance that, you know, so just for the people who got it. And then one-third public representatives, where community land trusts try more to tie into local government or local agency service, you know, more of a formal relationship outside of your organization. Nobody has a majority, but there is enough of a plurality of residents for their voice to be heard. And it's a good balance of staying externally focused, responsive to government, responsive to community. But obviously with the voice of the residents being very important. And I think that structure is extremely important, not just to functioning in relation to your community in the present, but if you really wanna preserve your mission, generation after generation, it can't just be a staff and a board that kind of gets very insular and then it can develop however. So this is a, a healthy tension and we have term limits on the board. So again, it's forcing all the time. You can't become that kind of self-perpetuating club, which happens a lot in nonprofits. So those are the aspects that were intentional to try and keep a land trust responsive to the community. And I will tell you my own experience with the CHT. As we grew, if we didn't have that, people would start to go, oh my God, you own so much land and property. And who are you? You're just this big bureaucracy or institution, right? because you would be if we were separate and inward looking. So I think it's very, very important to continue, you know, works both ways, to be part of the community, uh, for their engagement to be there, uh, and then for sustainability over time. Is it a challenge to, to find people to, you know, to join the membership and, and to, to sit on the board? To get people to join the membership, that is a broader, because we have a big service area of three counties. So we really have to do appeals and outreach. We've done everything through phonathons. We call citizens and we get a mailing list and we mail to people so you could join for a dollar because it's a low income organization. 
But we've developed, obviously, supporters and donors out of that. So you have to be intentional about the membership. As far as the board goes, once you know, and our work is known, and we've had great board members over the years, and so it's been easier through them, you know, through our community to reach out and get good representation. We have no trouble. But let me say this, this mixed board that you have to have has made us pay a lot of attention to board culture. Because otherwise you would have people who have a lived experience of housing and they have a lot to bring, but then you have people who are like, oh, experts in housing or wealthy people who can get us donations. And so we have to bring everything down so that every board member can have a common conversation. We do this through training, orientation, support, you know, it's intentional. And anyway, so as a result of having to do that to make sure that the board isn't, you know, it's a good experience for people, our board gained a great reputation amongst the community and people want to serve on the board and people come on the board stay and they want to do offices. So I think I, as you can see, I've become, with time, I've appreciated more and more some of the fundamentals of community land trust that I just think are a great model for civic engagement on this issue and a great model for equity in housing. It's like I'm a firm believer in co-ops too. We have a number of co-ops on the land and that is the same sort of thing where people come together and have to work hard to have a different kind of relationship to real estate, you know, and show your community there are other ways and they work well. Yeah. Well, there's the, in, uh, in British Columbia, in Canada, the co-op housing sector is using the community land trust model. So you can, you can have this hybrid where you, the, the stewardship of the land is you know, through the community land trust but you can build cooperative housing on that land. So it's an interesting mix. And you've done that. It was very exciting in 2020 or 2019. Yeah, the spring of 2020, the National Co-op Organization kind of invited me to keynote at their big annual meeting. It was on that topic. They said, you know, more co-ops, existing co-ops could look to this model to help them uh, retain affordability or to develop more on their land. And so that was fun. I had a great time there and, and uh, I hope I inspired them to use the land trust model when it works with their co-op. These things go so well together. Yeah, I think you, you have. Uh, just last week, it was announced that uh, the Ottawa Community Land Trust is, is official. And so that's a, that's a first. And so they're, yeah, they're, they're popping up uh, here and there and, and all over the world. And, uh, and the Champlain Housing Trust has been instrumental in, in, uh, in sharing this model and, uh, you know, in sharing best practices. So kudos to, you know, to you and, and, uh, and your team that, you know, you've made a, a huge difference. So staying in, in that vein of the, this, this hybrid uh, CLT and, and, and cooperative housing, so community land trusts have uh, often promoted owner-occupied single-family housing, but many CLTs have many multifamily rental and cooperative units as well. So Champlain Housing Trust has six co-ops ranging in size from three apartments to 40. Um, so CHT has both the ownership and the co-op model. So what's the advantage of using both models? Well, our goal, and this is one of the, another aspect of the trust that I, I like, and I think is why it is spreading like through your work that you have been doing international co-ops, because it's a model where that's adaptable. If people have a different cooperative idea of how to live cooperatively on the land, but it, 
for me, it is all first and foremost about people gaining security on the land and not being pushed aside by wealthier forces. So in our model, when we started, people were very excited that we could do this hybrid home ownership because home ownership mortgage rates were in the double digits in Vermont at the time in the U.S. And our housing costs were gentrifying. So this idea that you take the land out, you create an affordability, a deep subsidy to the buyer at the front end. And then in return, they share the appreciation, they share that market appreciation. That's our model. But we realized that then, and it's become more the case, that the renters were the folks who had no security. So we did work on landlord-tenant law that passed in Vermont after a lot of advocacy. So tenants had a few more protections, but um, people could not save as renters anymore like our parents might have and then be able to buy a home because the high cost of rentals and the lack of security is still in their homes. So we felt that to build up the security of people in housing, we needed to have all the models and that if people get into affordable rental housing and we keep that affordable and we treat them as they're members of the trust, there's no difference if you're a renter or homeowner, then they're going to have a better start, a better chance. And we've had a lot of people move up. So it is the same thing with the co-op. Folks came to us and said, you know, no matter how much you might make or earn or you help us with your classes, some people will never be able to get a mortgage or it's not for them. And there was a value to having a model where people could have an ownership stake without having to get their own individual mortgage. So we started doing co-ops. And in fact, all but the small co-op in our portfolio now are zero equity co-ops because we have to fund them to make them afford, there's affordables at rental. So we have to use all the financing and subsidy programs for rentals. So they're not allowed to take equity. So what we achieve with them, the zero equity co-ops is that through their leadership, they keep the cost lower and they have our best, our lowest, what we would call carry costs in co-op, but as compared to comparable rentals, they have a savings every year. So that's the dividend in our co-ops. And then we have an interesting one. We have a very large for Vermont rental development called Northgate of 336 apartments. And it was in an old subsidy program. And it was one of my projects. We saved that as affordable housing way back in the 80s. And when they had the chance at the end of, you know, the financing structure, like your co-ops have, they had the option to figure out what to do with the property. Would they want to have some ownership? And, you know, and they, they said, if we did, that would displace some people because only some of us could get a mortgage. So what they created was it's called still called rental housing, but it's a single purpose nonprofit that runs it just like a co-op, mostly residents, a few community people. So that's in our portfolio as well. And that to me is like a zero equity co-op as well. And that was very intentional on the residents' part. And I thought that was very interesting uh, to our larger conversation about how important it is to be open to what communities around the world need to do to gain their security and housing and what models work for them, what kind of tenures work, you know, that came from them. That's pretty cool. Oh, nice. So how do you ensure the, for the, the home ownership model, how is affordability built into that? Because people can, you know, own their home, but then, you know, 10 years later, they decide to sell their, their home. Are they gaining uh, equity? Uh, from from that so how are you ensuring affordability 
Yes. So we've done some studies to see we we have actually adjusted. We can you can adjust your formula. It's a formula that is rather than the market that determines right what they earn. And that's the great thing about a trust. It's not like a government program. We can tinker with it for the market. But here's the way we do it. We give people the down payment. Usually we try to get 20% of the value of the property as a grant to them. But we put the grant in the property, right? Not to them. So that's the subsidy in the property. And in our mar- in our market, that means they don't have to pay private mortgage insurance because they have a 20% down payment, which is unheard of for working people. And that means the money that they put to their mortgage every month, which is a much smaller mortgage, one that's designed to suit their income, they're building equity faster because there's no money going to the bank for insurance. And then in return for that in a single family home, they deed the land back to us because the 20% didn't, it was very hard to appraise land separately in our market. The very appraisers just don't get it right then. So we just say, you're going to get 20% down. You're going to have a mortgage of 150 instead of 200,000. And in return, the deal is you deed the land to us. And then you have a ground lease that gives you all the rights to home while you live there. Complete control. You pay a nominal lease fee to us, which I think now is $40 a month, which is what supports all the services and stewardship for those members. And this is what you get when you sell. When you sell ours, our, we use our model, though now that we keep them united, we go appraisal to appraisal. So it appraised for 200 now, you get it for 150. When you go to sell, you get another appraisal. If it appraises for 260, this is what you get. You get 100% of obviously what you pay down in your mortgage. You get 100% of the appraised value of a capital improvement, because we don't want to discourage people from making those improvements but only 25% of the market appreciation. So in that deal, let's say it's 150,000 and you've paid down, I'm just gonna say 30,000. You had no capital improvements and the house, a home appreciated from 200 to 260. So that's 60 and you get 25% of that. So you get another 15,000. So then when they sell, they're getting 45,000. So in our analysis over time, and there has since been national studies of trust-based uh, with the same questions, two thirds of the people who sell go on to buy in the market, which shows they've earned, now they've earned a 20% down payment. We also found that the return, the rate of return, because we're really not putting any money down is huge. It's like 25% internal rate of return. There's nothing a working person can invest in. Like your retirement investment's never gonna earn real estate. So it's a really a great deal for somebody who otherwise could not jump in the market. And we have found for that reason, we are serving more people of color in our model. But at the other end, the thing is maybe even more important is people never, people kind of always look away from this in our, in our government programs. But all of these discounted mortgages that the government supports for lower income buyers, five years later, only 50% of those people are still homeowners. The other 50% have lost. So, it's a tremendous model if you can get that initial subsidy. So that is the difficult part. The first time we, we create a property or take one out of the market, we need that 20% grant, which is much less than the government invests on a rental unit, but it seems like a lot for one buyer. So we've been able over time, policy-wise, to make the case that if it's serving buyer after buyer after buyer, that investment 
recycled forever. So we're making great gains, both on the national front with the secondary markets and also with our state programs. So I think people are starting to see this, you know, in these markets where cities want to keep their workers, their key workers and their communities, and they can't afford to do it. And if they give me $100,000 to buy a home, it's gone. Yeah, yeah. And then they, you know, so... It's been an exciting these years since the crash. Right after the crash, we could see we proved our case. But of course, you know, in the crisis, everybody's in a crisis. But once that settled down and we could demonstrate it, we, our national organization has made tremendous progress. We have a, a bill be considered in Congress now that would really support community land trusts. It was in Bernie's campaign. And the Biden administration is very hip to permanent affordability. So we think in the next four years, we'll make gains. We did make gains with one national program that serves a, a network of community development organizations, which were part of called NeighborWorks. And when we started with them, they are the home ownership government entity, you know, and the home ownership for poor people. And they always said, oh, we're about wealth building and community land just said, no, I've been, but you know, we persevered. And just last year, we got the first grant, uh, their national grant, big national grant as part of their federal funding to promote community land trusts. And they're doing a great job. And uh, they subcontracted with us. And I'm working in that uh, with groups in that network. So that's the first real federal program just for this. And uh, they're going to repeat it. And so, you know, it takes time to make the big policy changes, but that's been great, really encouraging to me. That's stuff that takes, you know, a lifetime or several. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. congratulations. That's great news. So the 20% grant that is given to people, where does that money come from? It's a capital stack now. Well, part of this work is that to promote public programs and support permanent affordability. So let me start with the city of Burlington created its own housing trust fund, penny on the property tax to only go to organizations with permanent affordability. So it wasn't just ours, but in nonprofit permanent affordability. And it also passed an ordinance called inclusionary zoning where any new development in the city, 15% of the, the units will say, cause it could be rental or home ownership have to be permanently affordable to our target to 75% median. But on the waterfront, it's 20% has to be affordable. And so that program means when developers, and we knew most of the open land for development was coming out of our waterfront, which was a post-industrial waterfront being redeveloped. So when people build condos there, 20% of them come to us discounted. So that's, that gives us maybe $20,000 a unit. We need 50, right? Mm -hmm. So then we have a state trust fund, which we also worked very hard as advocates on getting passed, which funds permanently affordable housing conservation, farmland conservation, open land conservation, historic preservation. So all permanent resources for the state, it's called the Vermont Housing Conservation Board. And they give us a grant. So let's say that's another 20,000. And then we make the rest up from different sources that are competitive that we are always going for. So our federal home loan bank system has a grant program. Where's a state tax credit now that we use. Sometimes we can get an extra grant from the city to make that up. So we have to stack it now. When we started, we were putting 20,000 in. The state had a lot of subsidies and we built our program with just that for many years. 
but then they, you know, they don't have, they can't do that now. The other thing is partnerships. So we partner with Habitat for Humanity, which is well known around the world, and they reduce the cost of a home with their volunteer labor. And it's very interesting because the Habitat for Humanity program also started in Georgia. And in the beginning, they were about permanent affordability, but in a change that we were very aligned with the community righteous movement, but we've drifted in different ways. But now they're coming back to it because again, they were building these homes and selling them to very low income people. That's their mission commitment. And those folks were just failing. So by partnering with us, we take them through our home ownership classes, we lock in the subsidy and they have our support. You know, that's what we do for all our homeowners and stewardship. And that has made a difference. We also often will set aside land in a development for habitat. So we're, we get a subsidized piece of land. They do the subsidized labor. Then we only need to raise a small grant to get to that 20%. So we're always juggling that. We are working on a advocacy in the state now to increase these subsidies. Um, and we'll see how that goes. And are you acquiring land like all the time, like every year you're, you're buying land? Yes, this year we built with the COVID money, we wanted to add permanent housing options for the homeless because they wanted all the homeless were in motels because in the shelters couldn't, they couldn't be COVID safe. So we bought three hotels and now they're, they're small apartments for homeless people. So we've added a lot. We added millions of dollars of assets this year. And generally it's, we add, 100, maybe 100 homes a year altogether, 120 homes a year. And then we have a lot of resales. One of the things that have made our homes very affordable is people tend to sell on average every seven years here. And a lot of our folks buy a condo first and they are doing it with us to stay to buy a home. We have a lot of condos in our portfolio. So we have a lot of very affordable homes for people to shop. So resales are another business line, maybe 30 a year. We were very busy this year because rates went down and people were saving from not going anywhere. And, you know, so there are a lot of sales. And those homes get very affordable over time. I mean, I was buying homes in the 80s for $80,000 that are worth $260,000 now. So what we do is when there's a huge subsidy in one property, we put some in a stewardship fund. So then we're sort of securitizing the whole portfolio. So if we ever take a home back and resale, where you know sometimes the family falls apart, the home falls apart, we have money to invest to keep up the stock. Yeah. So the home ownership program, it's harder to add. Although this year we are building condominiums in uh, Winooski, which is the Brooklyn of Burlington, it's the little city across the river, uh, which is it's, it's poor poor neighborhoods. And this will be a real boon, real boost there. And there's also many, many more people of color in that community because it's been an immigrant receiving neighborhood. And we're going to work very, very hard to help that community access homeownership um, right there. Mm -hmm. So do you know why people, like you were saying that on average, people will move on after seven years? Like what is it because they, you know, now they've built up some equity and they can you know, buy a, a better home or like, why, why would they, it seems like a pretty good setup. Like, why would they want to leave? Yes. Well, we did. That's why we analyzed why people leave. But, you know, in, in the U.S., that's very common. In some states, it, you own a home for an average of five years. So there's a bunch of things there. Labor has to be mobile now. People don't buy that home and sell in the community. They can't always work. 
family growth. So because people are starting with us with the condominium, if you're going to have a family, you're going to need a bigger home. And some people have sold one CHD home and bought another CHD home. But, you know, if they can jump to the market, you know, that's fine because it will freeze up the home for us for someone who can't. So that's just the average. And we thought we might be different. Like our renters stay much longer because they don't have an option of affordable rental. They can never get there. We have a lot of renters who are with us for life and that's fun. And now I would say, you know, we, we have this, uh, one of the things that really helped us build and grow the program was create a home ownership center. And we provide free home buyer, almost free home buyer education to anybody. You don't have to be doing CLT. So it's great consumer education. We get people mortgage ready. They can go to any bank. You know, they learn the whole business. But the folks who go through the class who can't qualify for the mortgage costs, then they look at ours. So some people go through the class, and if they're on the cusp, now they make that financial analysis. Like I could wait five years, and I think I'll be able to buy in the market, or I could buy now and build my equity that way. So we love to see that people have created this sort of tool for people where they can have the most secure entry into that really important wealth building for the family. We did one time, and you know, I can't get my hands on this study again, but one group paid this study, did this market study in three big metro areas. Chicago is one of them, probably New York and LA, but, and they took this deal, which used to be called limited equity, right? So we're overcoming this idea in the market that I need to get into being a homeowner and anything else is second class, right? And so what they do is we'd interview people who hadn't started looking yet. They interviewed people and said, what do you think of this deal? And the majority said, that's not a good deal. And then they interviewed people who've been looking for a home for a certain number of months and understood what it cost. And then it was 80% of them said, oh, this would be a good way to get in. Yeah. <laughs> That's how getting in, right? Yeah, yeah. It's a so, no-brainer. Yeah. Yeah. So how has the pandemic hit CLT members? Any foreclosures or evictions or, you know, or have you put measures into place to, to protect the CLT? One of the things we did early on is we said we won't evict anybody for financial. We'll figure it out. Stay put. We told our renters stay put. And then the state put on a moratorium on eviction. So that was good. And then we advocated with others for when the federal relief dollars came. We actually crafted the, we have X number of renters in the state. X percent will probably need help. We need this much money in rent relief. We need this much money in mortgage relief and so on. The state passed it almost everything that was asked for. So we have to date uh, drawn 1.6 million in rent relief for our tenants. And the moratorium in Vermont has been continued, but the rental relief program is over. And we don't think the Biden money will come in until March. So we're gonna have that gap. And we've had fewer, um, we're ready, for mortgage counseling, uh, but we have not had many yet. And that usually lags because those folks will have some savings, they're in the jobs that are less likely, you know, you have more of them in jobs that are less likely to be completely devastated like a waitress or, you know. Um, and so it lags, but we are working very hard. We have counselors and we, we do have homeowners that we're, we're helping them through and there is state money for folks. The banks have to provide forbearance, but the problem with that is it's a false security because at the end of COVID, it's just going to be due. 
So imagine starting with two years mm-hmm. of arrears mm-hmm. in your mortgage, who it is. And with banks, once people are in, sometimes you can negotiate rates are so low and you can, you know, we'd sooner get them now into a place. But that has not hit us hard. We did advocate to the state we're going to get one more person in home ownership because we learned with the financial crash, you know, the wave is coming. Mm-hmm. We've got to be ready. And having a counselor that's expert that can get the banker on the phone and fix things is very efficient way to help. It's almost as important then as having some money to subsidize them. But without that, people don't know how to use the money. The banker doesn't connect. We learned all this after the crash. So um, we're ready. Yeah, ready for ready for the second crash. <laughs> we are, but we really rocked it with the acquisition with COVID money. We had a short window. The state made their decisions by the end of the summer, and we had to spend all the money by the end of December. So we had to be ready to buy those hotels, and, and we've moved everybody in. It's really cool. We did one, the nonprofit that serves people fleeing domestic violence, and they were always a lot of our uh, our homeless folks in our other homeless uh, motel. And we said, let's do something with you where you could have housing for people and your offices on site and services program. And so we did that one. That's another hotel we did this year. Yeah, that's great. So the homelessness rate must be fairly low then. Right now, it's quite low, although people keep streaking into our region, you know, added homelessness. and So they're coming in from elsewhere. Yeah, we counted at the beginning, there were almost 500 people that had to be housed either temporarily or through these. So through our homes, we permanently housed about 120, and then the shelters got adapted, so they're doing a lower number. You know, they can still shelter people, but fewer and then we had a motel that we converted of 60 that we converted uh, at the state's request as a COVID isolation facility for a while. But then we realized it wasn't filling up as a COVID isolation facility and there were still more homeless people. So we reconverted that to being a place for the can come in homelessness and get hooked up with services and then we house them, but that's temporary. And then we bought two other little motels for COVID isolation. So, um, you know, one of the things we built up our finances so that we can respond when the state or the municipality meet and, and act and, and finance and purchase something. So that has made us definitely a resource. But out of it, we have really developed some very good permanent facilities like this one with the folks for domestic violence. You know, that was a need anyway. So we just got that done this year. Mm-hmm. And what, what's the community response? Like, is there the, you know, the, the NIMBY attitude or are people pretty open to, you know, and, and want people, you know, they, they, want, they want people to be housed? Yes. There was one hotel where we needed a zoning variance and there was concern, but it didn't get really big because for, for these reasons, I think with COVID people realized that the homeless folks don't have a place, it's going to be worse. And the hotels were going to go out of business. So they would have had that either an empty hotel and then, you know, or that hotel would just start, you know, a lot of the hotels are taking the state vouchers people into motels, but they aren't set up to help those people. And so there's always crises in those so hotels are worse. Mm. So pretty much the head of the police and the head of the fire came and said, because they have a track record with us, the facilities that these folks do are better than it's the best thing you can have. And you won't have any trouble. And we, yes, they need our services, but they provide a lot of services. So that got us over those humps. One of our motels when we bought it, we had the support of the community when we bought it. It's one of the richest 
suburbs in the state, Shelburne. But then when they got a new government, the government decided they were a new local government. They didn't like it and they were trying to find ways to revoke our zoning. So we decided it was going to cost a lot of money to fight that. But that was really just classism. You know, that was mm-hmm. because they were homeless. We said, if we don't fight it, we're the only nonprofit in the state, as much as it's going to cost us, they could afford to fight it. So we fought that all the way up and we won. It cost us like $85,000 in legal fees and probably $85,000 easily in staff funds, you know, and you do a case with that. Which, you know, would it have been better served going into housing? I know. Than into legal fees. I know. Yeah. But it was worth it because it made a precedent. Otherwise, other communities would have, we wouldn't be able to do the motel for the homeless. And we felt this money well spent because for that $80,000, we couldn't, you know, buy anything. So, yeah. But it was infuriating to be, I mean, I, and the, they got the pitchfork people out. And it was really, <laughs> I was, well, I was staring them down. It was really ugly. Oh, well, I'm glad you won. Yeah. So I want to talk about uh, a book on Common Ground, a book about the international perspectives on the community land trust that explores the growth of this worldwide CLT movement. So the book has a, a series of essays. I think tw- there's 26 essays contributed by 42 different authors from you know, a bunch of different countries. And so you, did you write a chapter? Yes, I wrote the chapter in there. One, one section is on urban models. And so I told the story of us uh, from the Bernie start, why the city chose this model and how we found out about it and developed it and how we've grown and what we do today. So it was very fun to write because it really captures the history of, you know, it's not just about the land trust itself, right? It's about a local government committed and citizen action. And I'm actually, one of my personal projects when we come out of COVID is to, we got this university that to say they would accept the archive is to do an archive and to capture the story of the civic activism it took to put these things together. Because now we have, as you heard in my description, we have municipal policies that support permanent affordability, like inclusionary zoning. And you know, we have to come out and fight to preserve that every few years. Some, some developer goes, oh, this doesn't work. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So telling that story, we're very excited to do it, but we're in great company with stories like from London and Denver, which is going to be a really big CLT. It's really on its way. So those are, you know, I think I like those stories. I'm a storyteller myself, a historian, because you get that narrative of how people came together and did it. But the other chapter is very, um, you know, I think it's really, we didn't pause since the movement had gone this global to see how it's developed and how these things have been spreading. So very interesting to hear how one section is just on the networks, like the Canadian CLT network, the English CLT network, and then just some thought pieces about where the movement should go from here and how we're addressing race and equity uh, in our stuff. So very, and really good collection, I thought. And we worked very hard to make it very affordable and to get a lot of it out online. Um, if people can go to Terra Nostra Press online and yeah, or you can just you can just Google on common ground. I yeah, I looked it up and yeah. and there's podcasts. There's a lot that's very accessible and free. And we're translating into Spanish first, of course, and then not it's not 100% translated because that it's the expense we're working on it. And then to 
also translate into French. So how how did the community land trust model reach international status? How did it reach you know this this new found stardom? <laughs> Funny how things get those spurts of of spreading, but I'll say that you know we when the trust started. The group in Georgia, they went to Israel to study the kibbutz, and there was another model, I forget what it's called, that was not a fully cooperative like the kibbutz, but was one where the land and housing was separated, and that's what they went with. But, you know, the model drew on all of these great land traditions, right? The, the garden cities, uh, the Indian Grambang movement. And so it's always been, in it, I think, in every, most cultures, there's an alternative to the market. But when you ask the question, I, I thought I wanted to, this is a story that hasn't been told much, and I want to give credit to these people. The organization called World Habitat that runs the World Habitat Award used to be called the Building and Social Housing Foundation. And they did that program for the UN, but they also came out of a regional housing organization in Nottingham, England, the coal mines. And they had they did other projects to spread models and exchange models. And one was a consultation, annual consultation on a new topic in housing. And they would have them at Windsor Castle. Nice talk. Because the goal was of where a great place to talk about land reform, clearly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I asked her why they did that. And she was supported by they were supported by the um Princess Trust for one thing. And then their goal was to get high level government people and international people and community people together. And she said, we had, it was a draw that people would come here. And it was a three day consultation. So in England, the housing cooperative movement was active. And then there were some people actively studying community land trust type models from the garden cities at the University of Salford. And these leaders and the Building Social Housing Foundation said, this is a topic for these times. And I went to that consultation and asked me to give a presentation on how we developed the community land trust. And that organization, the Building and Social Housing Foundation, was Diane Deacon was the director for David. Coming out of that, they published a beautiful book called Redefining the Commons with community land trust models. They brought all the people there together, they really, and they seed funded the first UK a network. They seed funded that. That's how that got started. So I thought they didn't just talk. And then um, in 2008, I got an email from them saying, you know, you guys should apply for the World Habitat thing. And I thought, oh, is it still innovative enough? And she's going, oh, but yeah, yeah. So we did. And when we got the, the award, we did a site study visit. And there were 12 people from representing every continent or 23 people from 12 countries in every continent. And they did a week, that's their model, right? They did a week site study visit. And some of those folks went back. Uh, Dave Smith created the London CLT, was the organ, an organizer. There were others there, but he went back. Gear de Pa, who was in Belgium and has started the Western European network. He was there with two other folks from Belgium and one of them, got the news while he was here that he was elected to local government <laughs> and he had funding he had power. They went back and they started the one in, in uh, Brussels. And then, um, so that was, you know, that really there was a seed going out. And from Canada, we had uh, Charlie from the Canadian Association of Aboriginal Housing and his organization. And he then came back and had us speak at their national conference. And then I got invited to other national conferences. And in Canada, 
we had all I had some interest from Canada before this, but you know, they really the Building and Social Housing Foundation and the World Habitat Award really helped spread the model and really supported us after to remain connected. I think I admired that program and I think it's become even better in the affiliations it has today. You know that through Cohabitat and the great people working there today to really focus on community-based models now. But the intentionality of the way they connect us to actually really learn from each other, I think was a tremendous program. So I wanted to give them all a shout out. Big shout out. Yeah. 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 That's good work. Yeah, and the they're accepting applications for the World Habitat Awards right now. Yeah, I think the deadline's in March, so it's coming coming soon. So I think that Canadian model. I should write to the folks in BC of the co-ops and the CLT together because they're doing it really on a scale, and they're doing it in Ontario at scale. That that might be a very interesting innovation because it's powerful. Yeah, yeah, they're they're very active. They they're they're building lots of communities. Uh, not necessarily all housing cooperatives, but uh, you know, in developing great partnerships. Yes, they're definitely the the trailblazers in in Canada. Yeah, and then years later, actually, also uh, I think they were dying at World Habitat, but they they yeah. gave the World Habitat Award to Cano Martin Pena in Puerto Rico, and that has helped with the Global South. That was really they gave them support, and of course, much more difficult for them to do that kind of work without the kind of support that that organization gave them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, yeah, we're we're nearing the the top of the hour here, so time time to reach our conclusion. So, you led the uh, Champlain Housing Trust for over twenty five years. Twenty nine. Twenty nine. Oh, so close to thirty. I know. I know. <laughs> but you know, it's time. <laughs> Never mind the round numbers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we, you know, yeah, it rounds off to 30. Uh, and so, but you're still involved with, uh, with the Champlain Housing Trust. What, so what, in what, what capacity are you, are you working in now? Well, I had in that role begun to do a fair amount of uh, travel and training. And we discussed in our last strategic plan, formally creating a technical assistance arm, because actually our, Ownership department has a state contract now and a federal one to help other groups. It was starting to be, and we never recognized it in our organization. So talking to uh, Michael, who's now the CEO, he said, you know, we could do it. Formally, we should do a technical assistance arm, put all that work in there. And what a great place for experienced people to go. And they, so I was going to do this kind of work anyway, but I'm so thrilled that I can be doing this part still with CHT. So it's just called T-A-C-H-T. And it's fully supported by the board and organization and enables me. Like right now, I'm speaking to folks in, I think, seven different states. And they won't all become customers. But again, it's our way of helping spread, helping people get on their way. And then if they need us, they know we're here. Um, So I'll be working with a few of them and with this National Naval Works Group, for starters. But also for us to be able to publish papers. I just wrote one on recent equity that will circulate and start having sort of the thinking from a local perspective. We have the great CLT Center for Innovation. We have the Ground Solutions Network. Those are networks. But the voice, I think, at the local level, we saw people really want to exchange with each other at that level. So it it adds a piece there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And would you, like, are, are you, would you consider doing international Absolutely. Oh, no, we're, we're open. Yeah, with COVID, that would be happening. But absolutely. 
I especially love, of course, as you know, to work at Canada. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I often uh, am introduced to to groups all over the world with uh, with Cooperative Housing International. I'm talking to a few folks in the Philippines, actually. I saw that with your uh, your Asian conference, right? Yeah, we have a webinar uh, March 9th. Well, actually, with the time difference, I just realized today that it's it'll be March 9 in the Philippines, but it's going to be March 8 oh. here. It's, it's going to be at 1030. Yeah. yeah. Speaking of your work in the spreading the seed and giving you a shout out, you were very instrumental in helping the Canadian CLT network start and collaborating with us uh, in the U.S. to help them. And you were very, very instrumental there. And I really, really appreciate that because it was very heartening to be able to help them a little. Yeah, well, it was, yeah, my, my pleasure. And uh, thanks for the, the shout out. And yeah, they're doing, they're doing great. Like they, they, they have a website, they, they're, you know, they have regular meetings, they're, things, things are happening. And, and, and a lot of it is, you know, is also because of government support and, and, uh, you know, funding. So that, that helps a lot. <laughs> It's really hard to do without, uh, you know, without the partnership with with the government, and and you know, and that was one thing I wanted to kind of pass observation on when you were talking about the, you know, the one third uh, representation on 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 the boards of, of of community land trust. It's really conducive to building those relationships that are necessary, you know, like building those relationships with public officials, with you know, with with government, you know, and with community and with residents. So it's a model that you know, it just builds that in right from the get go. And, you know, with other models, you're, you're, you're building your relationships almost like when, you know, when it when you hit crisis stage, or when it's, uh, you know, in the election cycle. But with this model, you it's built in, you you have to build those relationships. And and, and those relationships are important, they're essential for, for growing for growing the, the movement. Yeah. That's very good observation. Because when I started, in the 80s, when I would go to trainings and conferences outside of Vermont, I'd go, so God, they were men in suits. Yeah, you know? yeah. So when I joined the National Network, they were men. They weren't so much the suit men. They were more of our 60s generation, you know, but it was still men who were in leadership, as you say. And over time, women in leadership have really advanced. Yeah. So I'm glad you raised the issue of women in leadership because I didn't think about it much in the intervening time. It's become... Like, as you say, more and more women in the U.S., more and more people of color, finally, the communities we serve being represented. But when I left CHT, now we have about 120 employees, and a lot of them are women, and a lot of them, we have a lot of working class workers. And in their comments and notes and stuff to me, it meant a lot to women that there was a woman leader. And I had stopped thinking about it. And I've always, you know, mentored people, whether they're men or women who work for me. That's really a fun part of the job is you can, you know, that you can help them along all these smart young people. <laughs> but uh, I was, it made me think about that again. And then we think it's so changed, but they took, they took something and it helped them to have a women in leadership. So it's very important that the, all our communities are represented in leadership as well as in our organizations. Mm -hmm. And when we did the merger, we merged in another organization years ago and I inherited some board members from that board. It was a male dominated board. And I felt that shift. Mm -hmm. Our board had always been more mixed. So we worked very hard to shift it over. Those were like intentional. And you do, it creates a different balance, a different kind of conversation. So you do need all those 
voices at the table. And, and certainly still, I will tell you that women, we have a role to play for, for women in this world working because, you know, we, we know from the Me Too movement, everything hasn't been fixed and the glide path has not been created for women. Um, so we may be, maybe like something we live with, but it's a real thing now still. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So thank you so much for, for joining me today and for answering all these questions and for sharing the the community land trust model and, uh, you know, shedding more light on, on what it is and, uh, and, and best of luck in, with the technical assistance. Well, thanks for having me for doing this wonderful series. I think it's another great way for people to share. Truly. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this latest episode of Co-op Conversations. We hope that it provided a better understanding of what life is like in a housing co-op. If you're interested in finding out more, you can visit us at housinginternational.coop. We feature many stories and resources on our website with useful tools, studies, and articles on topics ranging from governance to finance to sustainability and so on. You can also find us on social media, on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram, where we like to share stories and good practices of co-op housing around the world. If you want to find a housing co-op in your region, I suggest that you do an online search for co-op housing along with the name of your city, and hopefully something will come up. I would like to thank all of our guests for sharing their stories with us. I would also like to thank our sound technician, Todd LeBlanc, who also lives in a housing co-op in Vancouver, Canada. Thanks for listening.